Test. All right. Wow, we've got a scattered group here. And who are all of you? <laughs> this is the Briz West contingent sitting on the west side of the building. <laughs> it just goes to show where the real commitment is in this room. Just saying. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, so I'm going to try to uh, teach today, but I, I'm going to um, try to keep this a little bit interactive, too, so, you know, feel free to interrupt, ask questions, or whatever. Kirk asked me to come this time of year, early in the year, and for months he didn't really tell me what he wanted me to talk about. Sometimes people say, talk about what you want to talk about, but Kirk didn't do that either, so I was kind of like, well, okay. So finally he lays this thing on me. He goes, I want you to talk about the display of his splendor, which is you know, an interesting theme and certainly biblical, but probably not what you would most commonly think of hearing taught in a setting such as we are all accustomed to frequenting. You're going to hear that kind of language, you know, more commonly, like in a Reformed church, or you know, maybe maybe a Uniting church. Uh, people who think about the writings of John Piper, that kind of thing. So it's it's a little bit of a unusual subject matter for our tribe, but notwithstanding, it's a good subject. And so the uh, the verse that Kirk has had in mind as he asked me to do this is Isaiah 60 verse 21. Now I'm reading out of the ESV, obviously there's different translations that people are using these days, but your people shall all be righteous and they shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might display the splendor of my beauty or the work of my splendor. You may have a different reading, there's different ways people are, are rendering that, but <clears throat> this is an interesting um, question, and so I, I, I was thinking about it for a few weeks before I really tried to write anything, and a lot of this came to me while I was flying from Dubai to Los Angeles on, uh, on the flight home from Sri Lanka, that, you know, I'm going to be talking to worship leaders, so it might be best to try and gear this in some way with a worship theme running through it for the benefit of those who are, who are serving in the body as those who lead others into worship. So um, the first thing I think we should say about this verse as it pertains to worship, as it pertains to the display of God's splendor is this, that worship is a verb. Now that might seem fairly obvious, but you know a lot of times the obvious things are the things we don't really unpack. So there are some things that are really meant to be participant activities rather than things that we simply observe or we talk about. And worship is one of those things. It is best not talked about. It is best done so that it can be enjoyed and experienced. So what are some things that might fall into this category? Well, I like to hunt and fish, but I really don't like watching shows on hunting and fishing. 
There's just no pleasure for me in watching someone else be out there doing it. Skydiving is in that category. If you've ever thought about skydiving, you know, the whole point of skydiving is the sort of, ah! as you jump out of the plane, that adrenaline rush, the hit that comes with all that, simply watching someone jump out of an airplane and tumble and fall, it's like, yeah, okay, I get it, but where's the thrill in that? There are some other things that fall into this too. Um, you know, football and cricket probably should be in this category. I recognize that there's an entire industry built around people who sit around watching football and cricket and don't actually participate in it. Maybe once upon a time they did, but the point is, if you're really enjoying that sport or either of those sports, you will probably be running down a field, engaging in the sport itself, or if it's, if it's cricket, you'll be engaged in standing you know, there, ready to swing the bat. Why is it that every time I teach, we get that? Is it just the neighborhood? Okay. <laughs> So, <clears throat> Neil was trying to remember the word proskuneo, which in Greek, pros means toward, and kuneo is the word for kiss. So, turn toward to kiss. I don't know about you, I don't particularly like watching kissing. It doesn't really do much for me. But on the other hand, kissing itself, that can be pretty good, right? So, <laughs> we're not trying to be lured, we're not trying to be salacious, but it behooves us just to remember that there are some things in life that are better done than discussed. They are better engaged in than talked about. And we would do well to remind ourselves of this if we think about proskuneo, meaning turn toward to kiss, that there is some worship maybe that is pornographic in the sense that we've cheapened it and turned it into a spectator sport. We've turned it into something that you know, the professionals lead while the people just watch it go on. And in that sense, we want to be careful that we don't have pornographic worship going on in our churches. It's, it's a dangerous thing that we can fall into. I'm not going to name any names because I'm not really trying to pick any fights with anybody. But I think we all know or could think of situations we're aware of, maybe churches, maybe church movements, where... You know, it really is all about the people who get up and they do their thing and they, you know, they have all the right outfit and they have all the right, I don't know, they've practiced everything. And generally speaking, when they're scripting out the service in churches like that, they will say, you know, we will have worship from 3.01 p.m. We'll have the announcement of welcome at 3. At 3.01 p.m. we start the, at 3.01 we'll start the worship. And then at 3.29, it will stop, and it's that programmatic and rigid. And while I guess there's a place for that, the heart of worship as the vineyard, at least initially in the earliest years of its existence, expressed worship, that wasn't really part of it at all. It was about singing love songs to God. We could say love songs to Jesus, but I deliberately switched Jesus to God because it's easy to fall into the singing love songs to Jesus, and we lose the pungency of what we're saying. So what we want to do is be singing love songs to God, and when you're singing love songs to somebody, you don't really have a timer on, unless you've got to get to work at the, you know, at the end of it and you've got to you know, get out the door. But normally speaking, you're a lot more focused about 
the individual with whom you're interacting than you are in the time. And so because worship is a verb, because it's something that we do as opposed to something that we have or we possess, the value of worship is ephemeral. It can be here today and gone in an hour. Have you ever had that one? You went to church, you had a great worship experience, and then some combination of your boss called, your wife got upset, your husband got upset, the kids acted up, you had to get out the door because there's a family function that you're trying to get to, whatever it is, but somehow all of that impinges and whatever you gained in the worship experience is now wherever it went, it's gone. So we, we experience the value of worship by doing it. Uh, and it can't be entered into by detached analysis or by passive observation. Now, if you were to go to a seminary, there are many seminaries that have a department of liturgics, which is basically the department of worship. And if you ever listen to what goes on in those departments, the things people say, a great deal of it is very detached. A great deal of it is very analytical. How do you write a good prayer? How do you, you know, lead people into that 29-minute or 28-minute worship set, not a moment more? How does all of that happen? It becomes very mechanical. So we want to move away from that, and we want worship to be a verb that we are engaged in. Second point, worship is uh, only appropriate for the Lord. Now, this year has been an interesting year for me. I've been to eight countries. Four of them were Taiwan, Mexico, Belize, and Sri Lanka. I don't know about you, but I'm finding that incredibly distracting. I'm sorry? I mean, I can't, I, I'm, I've got my notes in front of me and I can hardly keep my thoughts together. Is that what he's doing? I thought it was a motorcycle. Huh. Do you remember that time that we were in here, and I think it was a motorcycle that time, and they were like doing donuts out there in the cul-de-sac? Oh. So do you get a lot of this on Sunday morning too? Yeah, there he goes right there. You got a box of nails? <laughs> All right. So the second point is worship's only appropriate for the Lord. This year I've been to a bunch of countries. Four of them, Taiwan, Mexico, Belize, and Sri Lanka, um, all of them have this in common. Idolatry is still practiced to this day in the 21st century, 2014. Now, we don't often think about idolatry in countries like yours or mine, Canada, New Zealand. Yeah, there might be the local Buddhist temple down the street or something, but you don't generally see widespread open idolatry. But in countries like the ones I named, you do. And <clears throat> there are marked similarities between the idolatries of all of these nations. The idolatry of Buddhism looks a lot like the idolatry of Hinduism. The idols look different, the colors might be different, um, but the practices are remarkably similar. And I might say, it really kind of caught me by surprise when I was in Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka has a, a meaningful minority of Roman Catholics. 
And there are a lot of shrines in that country that look for all the world exactly like Buddhist shrines. The only difference is the Buddhist shrine has a statue of the Buddha in it, and the Roman Catholic shrine has, pick your favorite saint, Mary, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Jude, whoever in it, but there, there is a very great similarity there. And while I think in the Catholic community they would say, you know, we don't actually worship these idols, we don't worship these statues like those Buddhists do, the words that we use for worship include language like bow down or genuflect toward. And I would suggest to you, having watched it go on in Sri Lanka, that for a lot of us we've actually been led to believe that it isn't the same thing, but the similarities are greater than the differences. And in that sense there's a risk. The Lord says we're not to have any other God besides Him, that's Exodus 20 verse 3, Deuteronomy 5, 7, but we're also not to make statues for the purpose of bowing down to it, of genuflecting to it, and that becomes the risk. Locations for these uh, statues, when you see them played out in a context, are common. In other words, there will be houses of worship and at the entrance of every town they will have their statue and their shrine. And at every intersection of roads they will have their statue and their shrine. It looks the same whether it's Buddhist, Hindu, Catholic, or in some cases Islamic. The offerings that are brought are all common. Flowers, fruit, candles, and incense. It's pretty much always the same thing. Even the way they hang their prayer flags now, they may look a little bit different in shape. The script on them might be a little bit different. But there are more similarities and differences. And so we have to say, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it might be a duck. And so the point is, worship is only appropriate for the Lord. And as worship leaders, we want to be very careful in our worship leading and in our uh, leading of people into the presence of God. We want to be very careful to keep an eye out for anything that might look like it's veering into some sort of practice that would be, I'll just say, unhelpful. It might be, you might put a stronger word on it than that, but I'll leave it at that. And even without statues, even without those that are genuflecting and bringing flowers and incense, there are many things to which we can give ourselves in worship, but we miss them because they seem to us to be non-religious, and therefore we assume they couldn't possibly be idolatrous. They couldn't possibly be interfering with our contact with God in the sense that I've already suggested we want to move in. So Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there will your heart or your affections be also. He also said this, that out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths will speak. The first one, by the way, was Matthew 6.21. The second one is Matthew 12.34. And that second one has a parallel passage in Luke 6.45. So it's actually relatively simple to determine whether we're engaging in idolatry. And this is how we do it. <clears throat> where are our hearts focused? Where are our affections? Where is our interest focused? What do we talk about? What is flowing out of our mouth and out of our innermost being? So here's an example. One of the opposites of worship, perhaps, may not be blasphemy. I think it's easy to think that you, know, you either are bowing down to God or you're cursing Him, but maybe the opposite of worship isn't blasphemy but worldliness. 
John Wesley once said when, when he was alive, that worldliness is that which cools my affection toward God. Anything that causes the fire in my heart to die down, then that is worldliness. And if our words are the measure of what's in our hearts, and Jesus said that they are, then how do we measure our heart attitudes? Well, test one, what do we think about? Test two, where do we invest our time? Test three, where do we invest our money? Because what you're thinking about, what you're investing your time in, and what you're spending your money on is probably what you're most likely to be worshiping, whether or not it has a religious name on it, like Buddha or Shiva or Vishnu. Does that make sense to everybody? And so as worship leaders, as we think about the people in you know, the congregations that we serve, we can actually observe something of what is going on in people's lives by these three tests. And I might add that before we look at the congregation, we should look at ourselves. Because worship leaders are peculiarly susceptible, as are preachers, I might say, uh, because of being in public ministry, because of maybe having at times hidden ambitions that people would recognize and acknowledge them, of adulating them and extolling them, of being that worship leader who's so gifted and always brings us on or into the presence of God. Worship leaders are susceptible, like preachers, to the rush, you know, that kick of being on stage, of being in front of everybody, of striking the chord, having the presence fall. All of that can easily devolve into something that's more centered on us than on Him. Because we're no longer in the splendor of holiness. And so while we, as worship leaders, are, are charged with shepherding the flock to see what their hearts are full of, we should first make sure that our own hearts are not full of the wrong things as well. Does that make sense? I hope it doesn't hit too close to home. Or if it does, it does it in a gentle way. So while I was in Sri Lanka, I met a pastor, and you know this man was a, he was a good-hearted man. He loved the Lord, and he was he was doing a good work for God. And I was impressed with what all he was doing. But the funny thing was, when we were not in the church, when we were not in the meeting time, when we weren't praying for the sick and driving out demons, the number one thing that he liked to talk about of all things was mileage programs on airlines and the. A corresponding programs that go with hotels. And did you prefer to stay in the Weston or the Sheraton? Or was it the Marriott or the Four Seasons? And why the you know American Airlines program is better than the Qantas mileage program? Let me tell you, this guy knew every little of every... Thing. I mean, you could ask him of Singapore Air, China Southern. I mean, he knew them all. And at first it was kind of an interesting, you know, you can make talk with people about almost anything, but it, it was like such a predominant theme that I went, holy cow, this guy's really into this. And he told me that at one point someone had even told him uh, that he should be a travel agent. And I thought, yeah, that's probably right. But, you know, travel agent, pastor, travel agent, pastor. And like I said, he was doing a good work. He was, he was a good man. But it was out of what was coming out of his mouth that I was kind of measuring what was going on, and, and I don't want to judge him too strongly, but I will just say it left me a little bit disquieted. And so, um, there isn't anything wrong, I don't think, with wanting nicer accommodations, or if you can get it, being upgraded into the next cabin in the aircraft. 
But the real question is what percentage of time is given to these matters, and that's the rub. Because it's clear that at least in this pastor's case, it was taking a very large percentage of his bandwidth. So far, so good? So I don't want to give hard and fast rules. I don't want to appear to be a legalist about this. Um, but I would say we need to monitor where our affections lie. Where is our treasure? And we need to monitor what comes out of our mouth. What are we really talking about? And I'm not just talking about in those moments when you know we need to. We all have jobs. We have to be good at our jobs. We need to talk about that. But in our quiet moments, in our times that are our own time, what's coming out of our mouth? That's really the measure that we need to be thinking about. Because when we monitor where our affections lie and what comes out of our mouth, we can pretty quickly get a gauge of when things are too much. So far, so good. So, I'm trying to build a base here. Worship is a verb. It's only appropriate for the Lord. And there may be the possibility of engaging in idolatry that doesn't involve statues, even though many societies and cultures do, in fact, use them. So, what is this splendor that we're talking about? I did these things, God says, that I might display my splendor. What is the role of the splendor of God in worship? Why do we worship God in His splendor? Well, most fundamentally we are told this, we are to worship the Lord in the splendor. Now, the, the, the passage, the, the exact text that I'm quoting is Psalm 96.9. And it says we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, but I'm going to chop off the holiness for the moment. I'll come back to it but I don't want to dwell on that right now. I just want to talk about the splendor piece. So we worship the Lord in splendor, Psalm 96.9, and there's a similarly themed passage in Psalm 29.2 that says we worship the Lord in splendor, again, in the splendor of holiness, but for the moment, let's just hold on the word splendor. And all of this is done according to Psalm 29.2a, the first part of that verse, by ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name. And there are a couple of other passages in the Old Testament that speak of this business of the splendor of God. Both of them come out of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, uh, sorry, the books of the Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 16.29 and 2 Chronicles 20.21 both speak of worshiping God in His splendor. Worshiping God in His splendor. And again, Isaiah had said, God did this that He might display His splendor. So we are to worship God's splendor, and God wants to display that which we are to worship, which is His splendor. So it suggests that it would do us good to know what we're talking about when we mean splendor, when we say the word splendor. It's not a word that we commonly use anymore. It's a little bit archaic. It's dated. So what is splendor? Well, the word splendor means magnificent or gorgeous in appearance. It might mean brilliant, shining, colored, sparkling. So there is something about the presence of God, the display of God's personhood that is shining and brilliant. Now you might say, well, isn't God invisible? How can it be shining and brilliant? Well, hold on a minute, we'll get there. There are, of course, some people who physically see God that way, right? They, they're mystics, they're prophets, they're people who are prone to those kinds of experiences, and they may actually experience the, the other word for it is the, is the effulgence of God's glory. 
that which shines forth like when the rays of the sun come from behind the clouds. And that's all well and good if you're prone to seeing the effulgence of God, but you might not be one of those who is so blessed. So how then do we worship God in His splendor? Well, we worship God in His splendor because there is something beautiful about God. We often think of beauty as physical, as something that we behold or look at with our eyes, and so it is. In fact, human beings have a long history of creating beauty with the uh, creativity that God has bestowed upon us as a race. So we might talk about the beauty of a painting or maybe a sculpture. We might talk about a weaving, perhaps, or a tapestry. It might be, you know, I, I happen to have a particular like of musical instruments. So if you, if you appreciate a piano made out of ribbon mahogany or you see a well-made guitar, I'm not talking about the, you know, the one that costs $200. I'm talking about the one that costs kind of up here somewhere. But, you know, the woods, the inlays, the, all of that is part of the beauty. And the reason human beings seek beauty, the reason human beings crave beauty and they create beautiful things is because they are somehow giving expression to that part of them that is God-like. Not that they are God, but they are created in the image of God and they are giving expression to that. And just so, we know that there is something about God that reflects this. And that's why, for example, we have the cathedrals in Europe. Those were built specifically that they would draw the soul upward into God, that we would soar and that we would experience the majesty and the beauty of God, albeit in a man-made building. Now, of course, there is also beauty that is not man-created. That might be, for example, the beauty of, beauty of a sunset. Or if you go down to the beach and you see, particularly um, you know, where, where the water tends to play out kind of gradually from shallow to deep, and you see these multicolored layers of you know, first a light blue and then maybe a little darker, and ultimately it's kind of a turquoise and then deep sapphire. And in, in the midst of all that, there's reefs and rocks, and you see this you know, mottled effect and so on. That's all natural beauty. None of that's man-created. That's, that's God-created, right? This is God's creation that we're seeing, but it's a reflection of the beauty of who He is. Or if you've ever walked in a forest and you've seen the beauty of the green leaves, or maybe it's autumn. You don't get much of an autumn here, and even if you did, because it's all gum trees, you don't get a lot of leaves. But in cities like Melbourne, they've imported some trees that have leaves that change. In the United States, it, well, we're maybe just past it now. But about this time of year in the United States, the leaves are changing on the trees. And so what was you know, looking just like a solid field of green now looks like God took paint and dumped it all over the countryside. And things turn to yellows and oranges and reds. All of that is part of the beauty that we observe. Or maybe you're somebody who likes the desert and you love the, the sere beauty of the desert. You see the browns and the muted greens and the you know, maybe the yellows and reds in the rocks. These are all physically beautiful. And when we think of the beauty of God, what we're seeing in all that I've described are dim reflections of the real beauty of who He is. That there will come a day when we're before Him and everybody, whether they're a mystic or not, whether they're a prophet or not, will see Him as He is and there will be that awesome beauty of of who he is. This is what Ezekiel says he saw. I looked away to the north and I saw a great sandstorm. 
And as I looked, I saw something that was awesome and sparkling, like an expanse, and inside of it were wheels within wheels. And I saw the beauty of God, is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 1. And so there's something of that beauty that is there for those who can behold it. But there's another kind of beauty as well, and it's non-physical. This is the kind of beauty that has to do with the nature or the essence of something. You know, sometimes we will say, oh, they're a beautiful person. And what are we saying when we say that? Well, we're speaking of something that's inside. The book of Proverbs chapter 31 says, Beauty is vain and charm is deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. And so what it's saying is outward beauty is worth something, but it's the inner beauty that really radiates the most. And 1 Peter 3 says this, speaking again to women, but I think these things apply to men too. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewels or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner man, of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. There are attributes of people who, even if they are not physically attractive to look upon, they may have a beautiful personality. They may have a beautiful spirit. And there is something of this that applies to God that I want to talk about a little bit more. So we worship God for His splendor, but when we declare His splendor, His presence comes to us. How do we know that? Well, Psalm 145, verse 5 tells us, I will focus on your honor and on your majestic splendor. And in Psalm 96, 6, I started out talking about Psalm 96, 9 as a way of understanding Isaiah 60, 21. Psalm 96, 6 says, Splendor and majesty are in his presence. And so we might say this it's impossible to worship God apart from his splendor. If the people of God are not somehow interacting with, if they are not caught up in the splendor, the beauty of who God is, I would submit to you that their worship is pornographic. Now, why would I say it that way? Well, I don't know how I fell into it, but I do a lot of praying for people with sexual brokenness. And one of the things about pornography is that it is not beautiful. It's mechanical. It's two bodies together, or in some cases, more than two bodies together. But there's nothing beautiful about it, but there is something beautiful about two people in love when they come together. And of course, that doesn't belong on a camera. It doesn't belong on film. And so that's what I mean when I say much of worship that people might be entering into, if they're not caught up in the splendor of God, they are in fact engaging in a kind of spiritual pornography. And we need to lead them away from that. It's incumbent on us as leaders to show them something higher. Now, I told you that all these passages that I, these four that I quoted, Psalm 96, 9, Psalm 29, 2, 1 Chronicles 16, 29, and 2 Chronicles 20, 21, all of them talk about the splendor of holiness. So I want to talk about that word holiness because... <clears throat> That's the one aspect of the splendor of God that I've deliberately not yet touched on, and it was a deliberate omission because I wanted to come back to it so we could dwell on it. All of these four passages speak of worshiping God in the splendor of holiness, and yet, despite the prevalence of the word holiness in biblical revelation, 
Holiness is, might well be the single most misunderstood word in the Bible. Almost nobody really can tell you what holiness is. They know that it's somehow associated with God, but familiarity does not equal understanding. And so, lots of people sling the word around that God is holy. But holiness is not a vague religious sentiment that we carry around in our hearts about God. It's most certainly not sanctimonious behavior where those who believe themselves to be holy uh, somehow are laced with an air of superiority toward those who aren't holy, however exactly that's described. And the thing that's sad is that a lot of times that sanctimonious self-righteousness is quietly and passively encouraged, sometimes without people actually knowing that they are passively encouraging it. In other words, they're, they're, they're falling into a trap without even realizing they're falling into a trap. The word holiness means separateness. And by the separateness, I don't mean distance. God is not far from any of us. In fact, the Scriptures say that He lives in a high and lofty place, but He dwells with those who are meek of heart. So what do we mean then when we talk about the holiness of God? Well, the holiness of God is displayed not only in His physical beauty, which we've already described, but in those attributes of His personality, which many of us don't necessarily grab a hold of very readily. So here's just a few samples. I mean, you could pull out a systematic theology textbook and you know, get many, many more than I'm putting in here, but I just want to give you a, a feeling for it. The, the holiness of God is that He cannot lie. Human beings can lie, but God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And so the holiness of God is that He is utterly truthful all the time. There is no shadow of turning within God. That's part of the beauty, the splendor of God. But it's related to His character in this case. Not only can God not lie, God cannot die. God has no end. Now, the ancient gods of the Greeks and Romans, they could die. In fact, we have many stories that have come down to us to this day of the you know, deaths of these gods or of these demigods. But in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, God cannot die and therefore He is eternal. And so whereas we all die, or will die, unless the rapture happens, short of that, we all will die. There have only been a couple people that have escaped death, right? Elijah, he went up to heaven in a whirl, whirlwind. And Enoch, that's it. Everybody, even Jesus died because he took on flesh and became in every manner as we are. So everybody's going to die, but God can't die. That's utterly different from everything we know about the world. And not only do we die, but our pets die. Our livestock dies. Trees die. And why does that happen? Because the sin that our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned with has carried on not only to us, but to the entire of creation. And all of creation has been subjected in futility to the will of Him who subjected it. And is groaning to be liberated from the bondage to death. But God, God cannot die. That makes Him holy. Because He is utterly unlike anything else that we know. You say, well, okay, but... Never mind dying. What about 
you know, persistence. Well, if you took that chair there and you set it out there and nobody stole it and you just let it sit there in the sun, by the end of summer, that chair would be bleached out to as white as my shirt and it would be crumbling and cracking and falling away. It would be experiencing its own form of decomposition and death even though it is not a living organism. Does that make sense to everybody? And the whole of creation is doing that. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that there is entropy. Everything is running out of energy. It's running downhill. The universe is becoming less ordered, more disordered. Why? Because of this principle of death that is at work. But God, God does not die. And in that sense, He is holy. Not only that, God cannot be fully comprehended. He can't be reckoned upon. He can't be fully grasped with the mind. Now, the very nature of the way we live as human beings is we try to understand something and master it. And if we don't know it, then we delve into researching it. We might use computers. We might use observation. We might use scientific probes that we send into space. But the whole point of it is that we would get, ultimately get a comprehensive grasp on all of it. So right now in the field of physics, there is a push on to come up with what they call the unified field theory that unites electromagnetism and gravity and a couple of other things, strong and weak nuclear forces, into one, one theory that encompasses every observed behavior we have in the universe for matter. No one's done it yet. Maybe they'll get there. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But there's billions of dollars being invested into trying to solve that so that the human mind can wrap itself around how does matter behave, whether it's behaving at you know 0.1 degree Kelvin, which is just, just a smidge above absolute zero where all atomic activity stops, all the way up to plasma where electrons are stripped from the nuclei. And this is the nature of the human mind, and yet God cannot be fully fathomed. He is uncreated and He has no beginning. That makes Him holy. Because He's unlike anything in the universe. You can't possibly grasp who this God is because He has no beginning. Before the Big Bang, if you believe there was one, there was God. I have to say it that way because you never know who's going to get offended. God is morally pure. He is sinless. He never makes a mistake. Accidental or on purpose. He never falls into behaviors for which somebody could wag their finger and say, ah, tisk, 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 tisk. You need forgiveness, God. But you know, the Greek gods needed that. The Roman gods needed that. Many of the Hindu gods need that. But our God does not need any of that. Why? Because He is morally pure. That makes Him holy. Because He is unlike every other being that has ever been conceived of, let alone lived. That's the holiness of God. He's not subject to variable passions. He doesn't just fly off the handle in a rage like a human could. He doesn't just fall into lust like a human can. He isn't satisfied with something for five minutes and then loses interest in it and moves on to the next thing like a child does with a toy on Christmas morning. In this sense, God is unlike every other being that we can conceive of or know. That makes Him holy. This is just five aspects of the holiness of God. Like I said, I could pull out a systematic theology textbook, but I knew I was going to have to manage something to the time, and so I couldn't possibly go through everything that a good systematic theology text would cover.
<clears throat> but those are, those are human traits and aspects. God is utterly unlike His creation. Creation is called creation because it's created. I know that sounds tautological, but there is a reason why it is called creation. But God is uncreated, and that makes Him different from the earth, makes Him different from Mars, Venus, Jupiter, the Andromeda galaxy, the furthest quasar. All of these things are created. There was a time when they did not exist, but there was never a time when God did not exist. That makes Him holy. I've already talked about the subjection to death and to decay, but God is eternal. God is eternal. Long after the heavens and the earth have been burned up with fire and rolled away, and the entire universe as we know it today has vanished. I don't know what comes after it, new heavens and new earth, whatever exactly that means. Long after all that is done, God will still be there. And He'll be able to remember that old universe that passed away, even if we cannot. When we speak of the holiness of God, we are saying that He is utterly unlike anyone or anything we know of or can conceive of anywhere. So, how then do we relate to this God? If we don't, you know, similes don't work, metaphors don't work. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not a woman either. He's, he's neither created nor will he die. He can't lie. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He has all these things that, that we say, and yet he's so completely foreign to our minds that our minds bend into pretzels trying to grasp who he is. In our fallen world, He is the one being, the one, I'll say, thing, but I'll put the word thing in quotes, the one object in the entire universe that is uncorrupted in every way. And that is the beauty of holiness. When we behold God, we see something of the universe as it was meant to be when He created it, before it fell, because of what our race did. And so, the holiness of God... <clears throat> The holiness of God is manifest in at least five dimensions. There may be others, but there's at least these five. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, and who inhabits eternity, whose very name is holy. That's his name. Now, he has other names too, but one of his names is holy. How you doing, holy? We're used to calling him father, but we could call him holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is lowly and contrite of spirit. I revive the spirit of the lowly, and I revive the heart of the contrite. All right, God's name is holy. Mary, in her Magnificat prophetic declaration after the annunciation of the angel Gabriel that she would bear the Messiah, she said his name is holy. So there are at least two places in the Bible where one of the dimensions of the holiness of God is His very name. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, <clears throat> that when in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord was asked, what is your name? He says, why do you ask? Seeing it is wonderful, it is holy, it is beyond reckoning. There's something about the name of God that is so unique 
that the Jews would not dare to pronounce it. Today we're very cavalier in that people just kind of throw around and say, yeah, yeah, Yahweh. Well, that's probably how they did pronounce it, maybe, or Yahweh, probably. But the more important point is that to the Jews who were the ones who, to whom these scriptures came and who first had the revelation of this God that we serve as Christians, for them, His name was so holy they wouldn't dare pronounce it. And so when they wrote it, they would just put the vowels, Y-H-W-H, but they wouldn't pronounce the word. They would, when they would get to it, they would generally say Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. That's how they called Him, the name. Because they, 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 there was something of that that was so utterly indifferent, and they, they, they didn't dare approach to say the name. But today, what do we do with the name of God? Well, we sling around the word Yahweh like it's so much corned beef hash. And what's the number one swear word in the Western world today? The name of His Son. Which means, the name saves. That's the meaning of the Savior's name. So there's something holy about His name. I can call you Neil, you can call me Ken. But we dare not really say His name. You say, well, man, that's, that sounds legalistic to me. That's not what we do in the vineyard. Well, maybe we need to think a little more deeply about who is this that we're actually worshiping. That's why I'm talking about we worship Him in the splendor, in the beauty of His holiness. And I'm giving you one dimension of His holiness, which is His name. Here's another dimension of God's holiness. Psalm 22, verse 3. God's character. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. They trusted, He delivered. They counted on Him to come through, and He did. There was something about His character that was reliable. This is another aspect of the holiness of God, by the way. I'm talking about it in the context of His character. But the reliability, which is a subset of that, how many human beings do you know who are truly reliable, that are good for their word, that live out and carry out what they say they will do scrupulously? Why? Because they are trying to reflect that aspect of God's character. Here's another one, Psalm 60, verse 6. This is the third dimension of God's holiness, His words. Psalm 60, verse 6 says this, God has spoken in His holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, and upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. God has spoken in His holiness. The very words of God are holy. Now, one of the problems we have, again, going back to the comment I made about pornographic worship, is that in our day, this is not esteemed. This is not esteemed. And what's the, what's the most sure way that you know that this is not esteemed? Because there's an open debate going on within the church. That part of the church that purports to believe this book. And yet, you will look long and far to find someone who says without any qualifications 
I believe that every word that is in this book, at least in its original Greek and Hebrew, every word in this book is infallible and is the only rule of faith and practice. How else do you get people coming to the end point of saying marriage for gay people is fine and saying that they are truly Christians? It's because they do not realize that the words of God are holy and what they say is what they mean and what they mean is what they say because that too is unlike the nature of human beings. We say things all the time that we don't mean. We, we say things all the time that are designed to mislead, designed to leave people with another impression, but God doesn't do that. That's part of the holiness of God. Then there are the works of God. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. He is holy in all His ways and kind in all His works. So now we've talked about the name of God is, is unlike anything else. His character is unlike anything else. His words are unlike anything else. And the works that He does are unlike anything else. And then lastly, the fifth dimension. I need to wrap this up soon. The fifth dimension, Psalm 47, verse 8, says this one, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Well, when we talk about God ruling over nations, when we talk about God's rulership, we are talking about God's rule. We are talking about God's reign. We are talking about God's kingdom. Every other kingdom, every other government that's ever been established ultimately existed for the benefit of those on top. And they used the power they had to oppress those who were around and under them and to get what they wanted. That's why Jesus said to His disciples, the kings of the earth exercise authority and their high officials exercise the authority of those kings on their behalf. But with you, it's not to be that way because whoever wants to be great among you must serve the others. You are to live to a different standard than that of the kingdoms of the earth. And so God's kingdom itself is holy. We see this again in Matthew 13, 41. should probably turn there. Matthew 13, 41, The Son of Man will send His angels on that day, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. In the kingdom that is our God's, when it is fully revealed and manifested, there won't be any shards of sin left behind. There won't be any shards of wrongdoing or of deceit. It will simply have been extinguished. So these are five dimensions in which the holiness of God is manifest. Name, character, words, works, and kingdom itself. And so the challenge for a worship leader then is to be so captivated by this uncreated beauty that we both articulate it and lead others into it. And of course, we can't do that unless and until we ourselves have come into contact with it. If we haven't experienced the holiness of God, we certainly will not do a very good job of leading others to it because it's unlike anything else. And we struggle to find music to express that. We struggle to find words to express that. We may struggle to find dance forms or flags or art or you know whatever we're doing, painting, 
you don't have any up right now. That, that we might use. But we struggled. How do we give expression to that? It's a high calling. And it's much more than just getting up in front of a room and playing songs for people, whether we're using, you know, guitar or drums or electric piano or organ or synthesizer or, you know, occasionally what? Saxophones and trumpets and it doesn't matter. It's much more than playing music. It's a priestly function whereby we bring God before His people and we bring the people to God. We become divine matchmakers. We are engaged in something that is at least as important as the very preaching of the Word, which in the Protestant tradition is the center of the service. But I would submit that, that it's time to, to make this, this worship function more robust. And so with a proper understanding of God, with a proper understanding of the splendor of His holiness fixed in our minds, we can readily see how so much of what goes on in churches today isn't really worship in the biblical sense at all. It's religiously themed singing. It may be entertaining. It may help people somehow to focus on God. But are they actually in the splendor? Are they contacting the beauty of the holiness of God in the midst of all that? I think oftentimes that part is not happening. And as I've already said, much of what passes for worship today is in fact idolatrous, for it fails to instill in people a sense of the reverence, of the utter difference between God and themselves. Yes, we want to be near to God. Yes, we want to be close to God. Yes, we want God to be our Father. Yes, we want to call Him Papa. Because Jesus called him Papa. <clears throat> but there is also a reverence for God that says, you're my Papa, but I still respect you. And it's that respect dimension that has, in many cases, been lost as well. And so in our day, there seems to be a movement whereby uh, the people of God are now seeking to be more like the world around them rather than less. And it has many manifestations, but I'll just say this, there are whole movements of churches. I don't think the vineyard's one of them, but anyway, there are whole movements of churches whereby the people of God seek to become more like the world around them, generally, ostensibly, in the name of contextualization and outreach and you know, preaching to those who don't know Him. But the final summons of worship to the people of God is this one. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am holy. The final summons of worship is that we would have something of the holiness of God touch us, and when the holiness of God touches us, then we are ourselves unlike the world. So many of the things that we see going on are in fact 180 degrees out of phase with what God wants to have happen. He wants His people to be different from the nations around them. And if the nations choose to join themselves to the people of God, that's great. That's the purpose of mission. That's why Jesus came into the world. But He did it to summon a people to become like Him, not that the people of God become more like the nations around them. This was the problem of the golden calf. Make us a God. All the other gods or all the other nations have a God. So what did it do? Aaron made the golden calf. And the Lord spoke to Moses on the mountain and said, the people have played the harlot. 
When the Lord gave them food laws, He said, don't eat these foods. I don't want you to be like the nations around you. And with your sexual ethics, don't do these things because I don't want you to be like the nations around you. Don't tattoo your bodies because I am the Lord. And on and on it goes. There's a whole series of these things. God wants His people to be like Him, not more like the nations. So it's possible to live a life that's holy and yet be embedded in the world around us. By the way, in case you think I'm you know, an Old Testament Bible basher, 1 Peter picks up this exact verse of Leviticus 11.44. And it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't look anymore like the world that you came out of because you are now obedient children. Leave aside the ignorance that you had when you lived in ways that you didn't even know were contrary to God. Leave all that aside. Don't be conformed to the passions of that former state of ignorance in which you lived. But as He who called you is holy, as He is separate, as He is utterly unlike the world, so also be holy in all your conduct. Be utterly unlike the world. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 So we worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness because He is unlike anything, unlike anyone in creation. We are called to see the beauty of that distinction. To see that the very beauty of God is that He isn't tinged with all of the fallenness of the world in which we live. And in gazing upon Him, we should desire Him. And in seeking Him, we should find Him. Paul says it this way, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Worship is for God, yes. We worship Him because He is God and He is worthy of worship. We worship Him because He deserves it. But worship is also something that is for us. We are hedonists. We are Christian hedonists. We revel in our God and we revel in what we will become when we worship Him. Because when we worship Him, we become like Him. This is the call of a worship leader. And this is why we worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Amen.